Welcome to the Rebel at Large Adventure Podcast. I'm Drifter. And I'm Gypsy. Talking about ghost towns, graveyards, outlaws, heroes, and ladies of the night. Howdy folks. Thanks for joining us again for yet another adventure. Today we're taking you back to the Grayson Cemetery in Chicago, Illinois. However, before we go any further, we would like to send a huge shout out and a huge thank you to our most recent Patreon supporter, Candace. Yay! Yeah, from Salt Lake City. We're ever grateful for the support of the show. Thank you very, very much. Well, guys, the wait for the Pinkerton Agency is over. Today, we are going to share with you why we were so excited to see the resting place for Alan Pinkerton. We told you a bit about him in the last episode, so we may repeat a few of the facts. The history of the Pinkerton Agency is a long history, and we are just going to share some of the parts that the founder, Alan, was involved in. Because honestly, if we covered everything that the Pinkertons have done, I mean, we could talk about them for years. It's it's crazy. Right. Yeah. We could definitely start our own podcast just on the Pinkertons and carry on forever. Yeah. Yep. Well, Alan Pinkerton was born on August 25th, 1819 in Glasgow, Scotland. His family was not very well off. His father was a weaver and a part-time policeman. By the time Alan was eight, his father had passed away. Alan then quit school and started to work as a weaver's apprentice, earning pennies. When Alan was 20 years old, he joined the Workers' Chartist Movement. The Chartist Movement started in 1838 and went until 1857. And a brief history of what it was is a group of working class men gathered together and started to push for political reform in Britain. They had six demands that ranged from allowing every man over the age of 21 the ability to vote, and to be able to cast their vote in secret to the payments of members of parliament. So Alan was a major advocate for the change, and by the age of 22, he had a warrant issued for his arrest for his involvement in the movement. He married his wife, Joan Caffrey, on March 13, 1842, in Glasgow. Then the two of them quickly left and headed to North America to escape his arrest. They arrived in Canada and stayed there just long enough to find out there was a large Scottish settlement in Dundee, Illinois, and made their way there in 1843. Makes sense. They'd want to be with other local Scottish people, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Alan started making a living as a barrel maker, which I just found this out that it's also known as a cooper. Mm Mm-hmm. And a cooper makes coffins as well, so. That's right. But he specifically made barrels. At one point, he had eight men working for him, and I don't know how much money he was making in his business, but I would say he was doing fairly well for himself to have eight men working for him. Mm -hmm. Uh, One day, Alan needed more wood for his barrels, so he went to an island on the Fox River and began to gather the supplies he needed. While doing this, he came across a suspicious-looking fire that had just been put out. He decided to spend the next few days going out to the island and investigating what was going on. And he was able to uncover a large counterfeiting ring. And by doing this, he started a new career that he never knew he was able to do. Right. So business owners from all over town began to ask him for help in discovering the party that was giving them fake banknotes. It took him some time to track down who was in charge of these bandits. But he was eventually able to discover that John Craig was in charge. In order to capture John, Alan had to come up with a creative idea to get him out in public. He was able to arrange a meeting with him to show him that his banknotes looked better than John's. That's clever. Mm-hmm. The two of them met at a Chicago hotel to work out the details of their new arrangement, and while discussing things, 
Alan had two constables waiting close by and listening. Once they were able to gather all the information they needed, they were able to arrest John Craig. In 1848, Alan gave up making barrels and moved to Chicago. He accepted the job of being the sheriff of Cook County, and he held that position for a year until he became Chicago's first full-time detective. Kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also worked for a short time in early 1855 as a special agent for the U.S. Postal Service to investigate counterfeiting and mail fraud. Well, he didn't keep that job for very long, realizing that he wanted to start his own detective company and try to get work from the railroads. Allen partnered with Chicago attorney Edwards Rucker and formed the Northwest Police Agency. Because Allen worked for himself and not for the city, it gave him the ability to track fugitives in other counties and states where local police would just give up the chase once the wanted man would flee into another area. In 1858, Allen was hired by the Adams Express Company to investigate where their stolen money was going and who was stealing the money. Allen was able to discover that the train conductors were taking the fare from the riders under-reporting how many riders they had on the train, and then pocketing a portion of the money. So his success from this brought on a change of name for his company. He now started calling it the Pinkerton's National Police Agency. Yes. So the year 1860 brought Allen his largest break in his investigations. He was working for the Philadelphia, Wilmington, and Baltimore Railroad, trying to protect it from Southern sympathizers. The owner feared that people would sabotage the railroad in Maryland, cutting off the capital from the rest of the north, and federal troops would not be able to arrive to provide protection. Allen placed men in the south to gain the trust of the sympathizers, and this is when he was able to uncover a conspiracy to assassinate Abraham Lincoln. Kate Warren, Pinkerton's first female detective, whom we're going to do a Patreon episode on her, so if you want to know more about her, check out our Patreon page. She was super awesome, and I'm excited to share her story. Um, she was able to infiltrate her way in and discover that rather than blowing up the rail lines, they were going to assassinate Abraham Lincoln on February 21st. The plan was that when he arrived in Baltimore, Maryland, and was getting into his carriage to take the mile-long trip to the train station headed north, Two men were going to start a fight in the street, which would cause the police to leave the future president unattended to break up the fight, and this would give the murderers a chance to come in and kill him. Once he was dead, they would then flee the area to a ship waiting to take them to Virginia. So Abraham Lincoln refused to change his plans to visit Baltimore, so Allen came up with a plan to get him out alive. After dinner with the governor, Mr. Lincoln said he was going to bed, but rather than go to bed, Agents helped him into a waiting carriage and took him to the train station in secret, where they had a special car waiting for him. To prevent news spreading that Lincoln was on the move, Allen had several of his agents cut the phone lines so no communication could be made to anyone about him leaving early. Then Allen and Kate ushered the president-elect to safety. I wonder what that train ride would have been with those guys. Hmm, yeah, who knows? <laughs> would have been an interesting conversation in there for sure. Yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> Well, historians to this day believe that this whole thing was made up by the Pinkertons in an attempt to get on Lincoln's good side, because no one was ever arrested for this alleged attempt, and no actual evidence was brought forward that it was really going to happen. Whether it was true or not, it worked. It did. Yeah, and Pinkerton was able to gain the fame and notoriety he needed to build his company. 
During the war, Pinkerton was asked to provide information on the strengths and movements of the Southern soldiers. He sent a group of agents into the South, including Timothy Webster, who the South would use to carry messages to Washington and Baltimore. Another agent that went down South to gather information was Price Lewis. Unfortunately, his disguise did not work, and people remembered seeing him in Washington doing work for the Pinkertons. He was captured and arrested. While in jail, he ratted out Timothy Webster to try and save his own hide. Kind of shady of him. Mm -hmm. Uh, Webster was caught, convicted of treason, and hung. Pinkerton was so upset by this that he had Webster's remains removed from Richmond to the Pinkerton's family plot in Graceland Cemetery. Mm -hmm. Well, once the war was over and people began to move out west, more problems began to arise that the Pinkertons were brought in to fix. The West had no law and order, other than the vigilantes and even some of those groups were not very honest men. Yeah, like Henry Plummer. Mm, just like him. <laughs> yep. So many businessmen wanted to expand out west, and they would use the Pinkertons to help provide protection for them. As towns began to pop up all over for mining, the railway owners and mine owners would call on the Pinkertons to help protect their funds to try and solve who was robbing them, because the local police would not pursue a fugitive once they left the county lines. Allen decided to change the company name to Pinkerton's National Detective Agency to let folks know that he was willing to chase the men as far as they needed in order to catch them. He also added a logo of the all-seeing and unsleeping eye with a motto, We Never Sleep. Yes, yeah, so I actually took a picture of the logo. I seen it on the ceiling at the Butch Cassidy Museum in Mount Pelier, Idaho. So we'll have to put a picture of it up there. I mean, you can get online and see them, but... I yeah. took this one. <laughs> yeah, we'll put a picture up on the site. We also read something that the logo was the inspiration for the term of Private Eye because it was the mm -hmm. first detective agency, basically, and had a never-sleeping eye. Yeah. <laughs> kind of a cool logo, though, for him. Yep. Pinkerton's introduction into the Wild West began with the pursuit of the Reno Brothers, also known as the Reno Gang. Franklin, known as Frank. Creative, right? No. Yep. Simeon, known as Sim, and William, known as Bill, were sons of J. Wilkinson and Julia Ann Freyhofer Reno. They also had other children, but the three boys were the ones that were leaders of the gang. So The bad seeds. Yeah. <laughs> uh, from a very early age, the brothers were into criminal activity. They would bilk travelers out of their money by convincing them to play crooked games then when the Civil War began, Frank, John, and Sim became bounty jumpers. So a bounty jumpers when a man would enlist in the army to collect a bounty, then leave. The draft of 1863 would let men pay a bounty to someone else to fight in their place rather than to be drafted. So they would essentially go claim the bounty and then not go to war. <laughs> right. Uh, the Reno brothers uh, went and collected several of these bounties. So they probably made a pretty good money, a little bit amount of money doing that. Yep. So after the war, the brothers became the first Brotherhood of Outlaws, as it were, in the United States and robbed their first train on October 6th, 1866, making off with $16,000. Which is nearly $269,000 in today's money. That's a good haul. Mm -hmm. Well, this beginning for the brothers was also the beginning of the end for them. The contents of the safe was insured by the Adams Express Company, and they hired the Pinkertons to track them down. The brothers and several other gang members went on to rob several more trains, 
one netting them $8,000. Which is about one hundred and thirty-five grand today. Another robbery got them $96,000. Which is over. That's over $1.6 today's <laughs> coin. That's insane. Yeah. I think that they were saying that the $96,000 was never found. Oh, really? And so people still to this day are out trying to find where they buried this treasure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of crazy. Yeah. They, but I read that most of what they stole were banknotes. So either the paper would just be disintegrated at this point, or even if they found it, it would just be useless paper. Yeah, be a collector's hall, that's all. Yeah, it would be cool to have one of them, but mm. that's it. <laughs> Uh, but they didn't stop at robbing the trains. They also robbed the Harrison County treasure of $14,000. Which is about two hundred and thirty-five grand today. And then they robbed the Mills County treasury of $12,000. Yeah, which is about 201000 today. That's a good chunk of money those guys made off with. Yeah, yeah they had a good career. Mm-hmm. Lucrative. Well, several other gang members were caught during the final robbery and were brought to Seymour, Indiana for trial. As they stepped off the train, they were greeted by an angry vigilante committee that hung the men. The Pinkertons were eventually able to capture Bill and Sim in Indianapolis. After their trial and guilty verdict of robbery, they were moved to Floyd County Jail for safety. The Pinkertons then tracked down Frank and another gang member, Charlie Anderson, into Canada. After convincing the Canadian government to turn over the men into federal custody, they were taken to the Floyd County Jail. On December 11th, 1868, about 50 to 60, I read both accounts, so somewhere around there, uh, 50 to 60 masked men stormed the jail, beat up, and shot the sheriff for the keys to the cell. The men then dragged out the four prisoners and hung Frank, followed by William and Simeon. Then Charlie Anderson joined them in death. Frank and Charlie were technically still in federal custody, and when word got out that the men were not protected while in jail. Alan Pinkerton, he just washed his hands of the whole thing, basically saying he had nothing to do with the protection of the men once they were placed in jail. Yeah, he passed the responsibility off to someone else at that point. So Yeah, it was a, a huge like political thing. I'm sure. And I mean, I don't want to get too much into it because I really would think it'd be fun if we could go find where the Reno brothers are laid to rest yeah. and then do an episode on them because yeah. they're pretty interesting. I hadn't heard about them until I did this investigation on the Pinkertons. Right. Yeah. It's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. They're out in Indiana. Yep. Yeah. Well, we could make a trip of it, I'm sure, at some point. <laughs> One day our big loop will land us in there, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, the greatest train robbers that Alan Pinkerton and his men tried to track down but were never successful were the James Younger Gang. The gang robbed the Adams Express Company in Gads Hill in 1874, and they again hired the Pinkertons to track down the outlaws. Alan sent Joseph Wicker to the James Ranch to pose as a ranch hand looking for work. When they became suspicious of the imposter, believing that he might be a detective, they done killed him. Shortly after, the gang confronted more agents on a county road, and a shootout ensued, killing Pinkerton agent Louis Lowell, local official Edwin Daniels, and gang member John Younger. Yep. This fired up Allen, and when Adams Express Company withdrew the contract, he refused to give up the fight. He wrote a letter to George Banks stating, My blood was spilt, and they must pay. There's no use in talking. They must die. (laughs) 
Pinkerton recruited a local farmer, Daniel Escu, who owned the farm next to the Jameses to help track down the men. The plan was to catch the James brothers at home and trap them in the house. He gave last-minute instructions to the men, saying, Above all, destroy the house. Wipe it from the face of the earth. Thank you, Alan. Yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> On January 25th, 1875, in the middle of the night, Pinkerton agents surrounded the house and demanded the family to turn over the James brothers. Stories of what happens next vary, but according to the Pinkertons, the men threw an incendiary device in the house to try and light it up. The family, not knowing what it was, kicked it into the fireplace, making the cast iron device hot, causing it to explode. Archie Samuel, Jesse's nine-year-old half-brother, was killed, while Zerelda, Jesse's mother, her right hand was blown to pieces and had to be amputated near the elbow. The brothers were not even home during all this, and this upset the people of Missouri because they actually liked the James boys. They were known to take from the rich and give to the poor. The local farmers who supported the Pinkertons began to fear for their lives when a band of men rode up to Daniel Askew's house and shot him to death. Alan Pinkerton at one point even feared that Missouri officials would try to indict him and his agents. Pinkerton decided to turn his attention to other wanted men after this in hopes to get the heat off of him and his agents. Probably a good idea. Yeah. At that point, I would <laughs> reckon so. Didn't you say that their mother went to court and they asked her to raise her right hand? Mm-hmm. And she put her... Her nub. Her nub up. Nub in the air, yeah. Just <laughs> making a clear statement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, the next notorious bandits the Pinkertons were after was Robert Leroy Parker and Harry Longaba, also known as Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows them, right? Yeah. <laughs> yep. So they were part of the Well Bunch gang. And we did a little bit of an episode on Butch Cassidy's house. Yeah, his boyhood home. So yeah, that was an earlier episode. Yeah. So we'll kind of keep doing more about him as we travel along on his trails. Mm-hmm. Um, the gang was not on the Pinkertons' radar until June 2nd, 1899, when, because before that, they were just robbing, like, stealing cattle. Yeah, rustling. Okay. Yep. Um, so this time, they actually robbed a Union Pacific Overland Limited train near Wilcox, Wyoming. The men boarded the train, then forced the crew to uncouple the passenger car and move the remainder of the train to a safe distance away. Once they were away from the passengers, the bandits ordered the attendant to open the safe. When he refused to open it, they just blew it up. <laughs> yeah, why not? Right? So after the explosion, the attendant claimed that he could not remember the code to the safe. Probably a little shooken up, right? A little shell shock from the explosion, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so they just decided to blow the safe up. And they made off with $30,000. Wow, it's about a million bucks today. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, in order to provide themselves time to escape, the outlaws also blew up the bridge so a second train could not chase them down. Kind of smart, a train would go faster than a horse would, right? Mm -hmm. Well, E.H. Harriman, the owner of the Union Pacific, hired the Pinkertons to track down the robbers. Mr. Harriman wanted the men arrested so badly that after some time, with no result, he raised the price for their capture from 1000 to 10000 bucks. So that's from $32,000 to $320,000 per person. Yeah, that's insane. Uh, so the Pinkertons always seemed to be a step behind the gang as they continued to rob banks and trains. 
So the agency was so determined to capture the men that William Pinkerton, who's Alan's son, helped join in the search. September 19, 1900, Butch Cassidy, Sundance, and Will Carver rode into Winnemucca, Wyoming and robbed a national bank, making off with more than $32,000 in gold coins. Yeah, and that's just over a million bucks again. These guys are making off with a good amount of money. Um, After that, the bandits knew a larger manhunt would be after them, so they went to Fort Worth, Texas to lay low. Fort Worth was a much bigger town at that time than all the towns around Winnemucca were, so I'm sure it was a lot easier for them to blend in. Yeah, just disappear in a crowd. Yeah. Also, they were, like, moved over so many states that nobody in Texas was really looking for them at that point. Mm Mm-hmm. So they spent several weeks in the area, and during this time, Will Carver married the soiled angel Callie May, also known as Lily Davis, on December 1st, 1900. So on November 21st, the five men were drinking in the Sheehan Saloon located at 705 Main. That was on the edge of Hale's Half Acre. Uh, The men decided that they would go upstairs to John Swartz's portrait studio. He was running a special that day, which is 12 pictures for $1.75. Which is $55 today. And at first I was like, that's a ripoff. <laughs> and then you're like, what did you say they weren't doing? Huh? When you're like, they weren't taking selfies of them. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah they're, they're not doing selfies. That's not a bad deal. <laughs> this is an actual portrait studio. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Well, they did this because they wanted to document the joyous occasion of the wedding there. So Longabaugh, Kilpatrick, and Cassidy were seated in the front, that's left to right, and Will Carver and Harvey Logan in the back going left to right. This picture is what gave them the name, the Fort Worth Five. The next day, the men went to pick up the pictures, and that was the last Swartz saw the men. Swartz liked the picture so much that he displayed it in his storefront window. So from here, there are several versions to this story. So don't send us any nasty emails about how we got the facts wrong. When we tell you what happens next, we're just going to share with you the version that regards the Pinkertons and the way they, the Pinkertons, put it back then. Mm -hmm. So the story goes that a Pinkerton detective agent was trailing the fellows in Fort Worth and noticed the picture in the window. As he got a closer look, he realized that several of those in the picture were the men he was after. He was able to obtain a copy of the picture and sent it to the Pinkerton Agency in Denver, where they used the photo to spread the word of the robbers and killers and what the men now look like. As word spread across the nation of what these men looked like, they began to capture or be killed one at a time. Will Carver met his maker on April 2nd, 1901, when he was cornered and gunned down, which was only a few months after he was married. Mm-hmm. Ben Kilpatrick was arrested in St. Louis on November 5th, 1901, and sentenced to 15 years in the penitentiary. If I remember correctly, I think he only served 10 years of the 15 years. Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. And then Harvey Logan was arrested December 1901, but he escaped and was killed near Parachute, Colorado, which we've been to Parachute. Yep, we've been in that area. You're supposed to be able to look east, and everything happened about a mile from the rest stop off of the interstate. Oh, that's right. Yeah, there's a sign there, huh? Yeah, it's just off of I-70. Okay, yeah. Well, as for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, we'll leave that up to you guys. Did the Pinkertons kill them? I don't know. (laughs) Were they killed in a shootout in Bolivia? I wasn't there. You weren't? I was out at the time. Oh, okay. Or maybe do you think the men stayed on the run, living out a long life 
under a different name. Lots of folks think so. Yeah, there's some evidence that thinks that maybe that's true. Well, <laughs> well, Alan Pinkerton and his men didn't just chase robbers and murderers. They were also part of a major worker strike that took place in Pennsylvania between 1861 to 1875. So during this time in history, the Irish were discriminated against based upon their religion and heritage. Store owners would often put up help-wanted signs that read, Irish need not apply. That's horrible. Yeah. So the only jobs they were able to get were working in the coal fields for pretty minimal wages out mm -hmm. there. The men and their families would live in company-funded housing and were forced to buy all their supplies from the company store on credit, which is pretty common practices from mines back then. Yeah. Were we in encampment and we heard that they were doing that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. They had uh, the accounting ledgers, basically like the credit card. Yeah. The credit receipts and all that. Oh, that's right. And he like pulled out that drawer and it had people's names on it. Mm -hmm. And they would just stamp it and then write what they took. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah, at the end of the month, they'd just have to pay the rent on their house and settle up the bill at the store. Oftentimes, they'd still be left owing money because these places would kind of rob them a little bit. Yeah. Over, everything was overpriced and making a lot of money off of the men. So, earning all their money back that they were paying for the labor. Yeah, essentially. It's not an all-inclusive resort. Uh, nope. <laughs> oh, man. That was so funny. <laughs> the working conditions for the men were terrible. Deaths and serious injuries numbered in the hundreds each year. On September 6th, 1869, a fire at the Avondale Mine in Luzerne County, Pennsylvania, took the lives of 110 miners. The families who blamed the mine stated that the mine owners would not put in a second exit for the men, therefore trapping them in the mine. John Sini, head of the Working Men's Malevolent Association, told the men, quote, Men, if you must die with your boots on, do for your family, your homes, your country, but do not longer consent to die like rats in a trap for those who have no more interest in you than in the pick you dig with. Thank you. Thank you. He asked several of the miners to join the union, and thousands of them did so. The Great Depression in 1873 brought more anger to the miners when Franklin Gowen, president of the Reading Railroad, cut the men's wages but required them to produce more coal. Kind of messed up of them. Mm -hmm. A group of Irish Catholic men band together and formed the Molly Maguires, then went on strike. Franklin didn't care. He just brought in more men to do the work. All this did was just upset them even more. And to add salt to the wounds, the men watched him riding around in his private cars, all the while claiming that he did not have enough money to pay them living wages. Mm -hmm. yep, pretty typical. Yeah. Well, Franklin, fearing what the men would do during the strike, hired the Pinkertons to investigate who was involved in the Molly Maguires and who the leaders were. Alan knew that he couldn't just send in any agent into the group. He needed someone that was both Irish and Catholic so they would fit in and would be able to gain the trust of the men. Kind of pretty useful to be able to be like them, right? Yeah. He chose James McParlin, a 29-year-old Ulster immigrant who went in secret under the name of James McKenna. James made his way to the camp on October 27, 1873. And by 1874, he accepted an invitation to join the Molly Lodge in the town of Shenandoah. He wasn't there for very long before they uh, liked him, right? Yeah. 
So during his time with the Mollies, he witnessed the group murder several men, as well as several of the Mollies get murdered. Several events took place that ultimately led to the end of the strike, as well as the end of the Mollies. In July 1875, a local police officer was shot and killed. The public was outraged by this and demanded justice. The next thing that happened was when McParland gave the newspapers the names and residences of more than 400 Mollies. The public finally had all the information that they needed. The first trial for the Mollies was held January 18, 1876, and by February 1st, Gowen and Pinkerton got the guilty verdict that they had hoped for. One by one, more of the Mollies were brought in for trial, and in all, 20 men were found guilty and convicted to hang. On June 21st, 1877, six men were hanged in the prison at Pottsville, and four were hanged at Munchchunk Carbon County Jail. The day was known as Black Thursday. So many Irish immigrants traveled several miles to see the men one last time before they were taken to the gallows. Historians now agree that the trials and executions were an outrageous use of the criminal justice. And in 1979, John Kehoe, the supposed king of the Mollies, was granted a full pardon by the state of Pennsylvania. That essentially means they held a posthumous trial for him. Yep. And he was found innocent, correct? Correct, yeah. Okay, that's crazy. Yep. Each one of the stories we shared with you is just a small amount of the history about the Pinkerton Detective Agency. Alan Pinkerton started the agency back in 1847 when he found the counterfeiters on the Fox River. And today, as of 2021, the company is still in operation and is now worldwide. I don't know of any other company off the top of my head that has been around that long. Um, I'm sure he had no idea that his help back then would turn his company into what it is today. Yeah, no, there's a few names that are just old, like Wells Fargo and all that kind of stuff that have carried on. But yeah, mm -hmm. that's a, quite a legacy. Yeah, I know. I kept thinking, like, I don't know, I know, maybe somebody out there knows a company that's still around, but it, that's crazy to me. Mm-hmm. Again, we just shared some of the stories about Alan and the involvement the Pinkertons had in history. There is so much more to learn about them. And if you guys are interested, I've read a book called Inventing the Pinkertons or Spies, Sleuths, Mercenaries, and Thugs by S. Paul O'Hara. It is a rather long book and the lettering is a little small. I had to reread a lot of the things because he did pack a lot of information into this book and I would get lost sometimes and have to kind of go back and reread. And some of the quotes and the words they used back then, I'm like, what the hell are they saying? Mm -hmm. So I'm Googling these words like, what the heck does this mean? Um, but it's still, it's, it's a really good book. It's super worth a read. The other sources I used was The 51st Years of the Pinkertons by Frederick Voss. I read a fascinating article about the Wild Bunch photo called The Last Word on the Famous Wild Bunch Photo by Richard Seltzer and Donna Donnell. And that one went through basically how the picture was actually really discovered. It was a fun read. And then an article on History.net about the Mollies. And I did look up some information on Wikipedia, but if you're going to use information from there, you do need to fact check the sources from Wikipedia. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, good job. Yeah. Are we uh, 
Are we done, or are you going to do this, uh, the dad joke thing again? I do have this dad joke thing I want to do. We're still doing it. Of course. All right. It seems to be a high demand, huh? <laughs> well, before I tell you the joke, I actually want to personally thank Jenny from the Ordinary Extraordinary Cemetery podcast. And if you guys haven't listened to them yet, go and check them out. They do an amazing job on the history of cemeteries and who is buried in them. They don't just pick like famous, well-known people. And uh, their catch line is actually where every death has a life and every life has a story. And I never thought about it that way, but it is true. Everyone on this planet has a story. And I love that they try to share all these stories. Absolutely. They also do a lot of interviews with folks who run cemeteries, as well as a great interview they did recently with tomb guard Ruth Robinson for the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. We listened to that episode on our way out to actually meet Jenny in Rollins, Wyoming, and it certainly brought some tears to our eyes. These gals are do some amazing yeah. research there. Yeah, so really, guys, go check them out and give them a listen. It's, mm. They're awesome. Um, so when we met up with Jenny, and she actually brought her son with her, which, oh my gosh, he was hysterical. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, she gave us a few books, and one of them was meant specifically for me. So you don't get to read it. Fine. Okay. It's called Dad Jokes, The Good, The Bad, The Terrible, and I love it. I was actually reading a few of the jokes to Drifter on the ride home, and I got some pretty good eye rolls and chuckles from him. Yeah, you might be able to hear the eye rolls from here. <laughs> <laughs> so this joke was found in the book, and it goes perfect with the episode. So are you ready? Thanks, Jenny. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yeah, tell me what you found. Okay, so why did the rabbits go on strike? <laughs> why, why did the rabbits go on strike? Because they wanted a better celery. <laughs> I literally wrote LOL. <laughs> I see that you did that, yeah. Was that so that it reminded you to actually laugh out loud? No, we should have highlighted that for you to read. <laughs> oh. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, there you have it, folks. <laughs> okay. That's our interest in the Pinkertons and kind of what drove us to check out Pinkerton's headstone in the Graceland Cemetery. Also, if you have not listened to our episode about the Graceland Cemetery, it is mile marker 23, so go and uh, check it out. Yeah, that was just our previous one right before this. So yeah. if you want to see some pictures of our travels, a lot of them are going to probably duplicate between the last two episodes. Yeah. Uh, but we'll post them on the website. At revelatlarge.com, where you will also find links to our other social things as well. Yeah, mostly uh, we're most active on Instagram, so yep. you can follow us there. The Instagram is at revelatlarge. And also, if you haven't rated us yet, please give us a five-star review. And if you feel so inclined, leave us a comment. Well, tomorrow morning, we'll be on our way to Denver for the HearseCon. I'll post some pictures on Instagram of the hats that I'll be wearing so you can kind of pick us out of the crowd. I'm the, the taller guy. Yeah. And you'll see the hat. So if you see us, come and say hi. Uh, we've put together some little swag kits for you if you come and find us. Yep. All righty. Um, anything else? No, I'm good. Are you good? I'm good. Okay. All righty. Well, we'll talk to y'all here in a couple weeks. Thanks again, folks. Safe travels. We'll see y'all down the road.
Good job, Mr. Pinkerton. <laughs> Pinkerton's introduction into the Wild West began with the pursuit of the Reno Brothers, also known as the Ringo Gang. That, that said Ringo, huh? You said Ringo. I know. I said it. <laughs> okay. Freyhofer? Yeah. Yeah, Freyhofer. Okay. Then when the Civil War began, Frank, John, and Sim, they actually became bounty hunters. And I remember one of them served sometime in the war. I just can't remember which one. Well, they became bounty jumpers. Oh, yeah. Not bounty hunters. <laughs> Don't me to say that over. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, man. I'm so funny. <laughs> So he Jones. <laughs> Sorry, that sounded funny how you said that. Right. Okay. And four were hanged at Mouch. Um, each one of the stories we shared is just a small amount of the history that the Pinkerton detect about the tink <laughs> Tinkerton. <laughs> the Stinkerton. <laughs> Let's put that in your head. Yes, I've been trying not to think that because it's so <laughs> funny. When I was typing it out, I was spelling it P I N K E R S T O N. Pinkerston. <laughs> I'm like, why do I keep doing that? I don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> 